Dearest Charles, Dearest Diana, I am writing to let you know that everyone is now of one mind, that a termination of your marriage is not only inevitable, but preferable. When you made your vows to each other on your wedding day, it was an occasion that warmed millions of hearts around the world. Fourteen years later, those vows lie shattered all around us. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman, and this is the show that follows the fifth season of the Netflix series The Crown, episode by episode. We'll be taking you behind the scenes, speaking to many of the creatives involved and diving deep into the stories. Today, we'll be talking about episode nine, couple 31. Queen Elizabeth is devastated as she runs out of options over Charles and Diana's toxic marriage and asks them to divorce, hoping the Prime Minister can mediate peace in this painful breakup. But will the Willsies and the fractured royal family ever find closure? And will Camilla ever be accepted by Charles's side? We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode, so if you haven't managed to watch episode 9 yet, I suggest you do that now, or very soon. Coming up later, we'll hear from Olivia Williams, who plays Camilla Parker Bowles on the show. I feel that Camilla's wig is the kind of the pinnacle of the crown's achievement over six seasons. (laughs) Head of research for the crown, Annie Salzberger, joins me to tell us about Camilla's real-life meeting with the spin doctor. So he comes on board, and aside from helping just finalise the divorce, he's tasked with masterminding the introduction of Camilla into public life. We'll also hear from the director of this episode, Christian Schwoho. So what we did is a whole day we would shoot them cooking together, improvising a lot. But first, I spoke to executive producer on The Crown, Suzanne Mackey. Episode 9, Couple 31 oh. is... Oh, here we go. There's, I can, you got oh. a soft spot for you? <laughs> totally, yeah. 100%. Partly because it's called Couple Number 31. It's mm-hmm. such a brilliant concept and, again, true that they were, you know, just another couple on that day that the divorce papers travelled through the system of, you know, a normal court of law and were subject to exactly the same procedure that any other mm. normal <laughs> divorcing couple would have been. And that that I found, we all found incredibly moving and incredibly clever of Peter. So to, clever. Yeah, to call it that and to it be about that, actually. And the way that it's shot in terms of... You know, we go off and we we follow other parts of of the narrative of of whether it's Camilla on house arrest, and oh. we get these little almost kind of mini inserts of the next couple that have gone through that process. 100%. It's such a clever. It's not a mechanic, but it's a, a, I guess you know yeah. a, a, a creative decision. Yeah. No, I really, I, I I really applaud the the storytelling of that episode and of course the way in which Christian shot it he's such a clever director mm. we often all of us sit there and go oh, come on put your hand up if you who's who's not divorced <laughs> it's like okay yeah point <laughs> mate but there is the truth you know that this is something that feels very very familiar 
and universal, sadly. And and so the decision to tell it through varying degrees of people's marital pain, mm. whether it's the three couples we depict, which I love, and it was sort of in almost tribute to Harry Met Sally in, in sort of in reverse. Mm. And to be able to sort of show how complex it is and how, how very nuanced and you can't, whether there's terrible acrimony or just sadness, there are all those layers and layers mm. of emotion in that world of divorce. And even like the, the tiny little moment between John Major and Norma Major where she says, are you going to come to Chequers this weekend? And, and he hesitates and you can see her pain at the thought of yet another weekend without her husband mm. and what that cost is to a family and to a wife or a, or a husband, all culminating in that final scene or penultimate scene between Diana and Charles and the omelette scene, as we call it, mm. and how I, I, I find that what Peter explores in that of regret and doubt and actually he sort of allows all that to play out in that beautiful, beautiful, complex scene. Now that we're here, a review of the marriage, an audit, no judgments, no arguments, just... Lay it out on the table. An autopsy. Don't say that. No. Marriage is dead. Both signed the death certificate. It is an autopsy. It's incredible. It's it, you know, and you know, obviously Peter's got so much experience in in writing for the theatre as well as yeah. for TV and film, and that particular scene is very theatrical. Yeah, it is. Um, both in terms of how it's written how it's performed, how it's shot. It's almost like a short film within the episode. It's so incredible. I know, and all those gear changes and all those moments of reaching another moment of, of togetherness and happiness and, and reflection of the good times to suddenly, within a split second, be hitting something that's painful and full of anger and, and recrimination and, and how skillfully both the actors and Christian, the director, and Peter, the writer, have been able to navigate with such truth, that conversation and how it leads ultimately to a door being slammed and despair and, and you know, on one hand, you they come away with defiance. Charles feels defiant that that was the right decision and yet, you know, there's no way that he would walk away from that without feeling terrible, terrible, terrible despair. Mm. As you do, as you do, even when you know you've made the right decision, even though when you know you've come to a place of resolution, it doesn't mean that you're not then left with terrible feelings of desolation. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, John Major and, and his wife and another incredible piece of casting. and Johnny. Oh, my God, Johnny Lee Miller is like I a know. Man. Who would believe? And then, actually, the minute we brought him over and we did a camera test and made him into John Major, it was really surprising and kind of gorgeous. Yeah. And he's a really, really intuitive actor and it's a really beautiful performance. So, yeah, we're thrilled, really it, thrilled. It's really delicate. Yeah. Like, you know, the idea of someone playing... John Major, you have expectations of that and he does not go there at all with any of it. No, it's and I love that about it. Totally agree with you. It's really gentle and it's and you can understand why the Queen was so at peace with him and trusted him. And and we talked about it as we always do about everything, ad nauseum, that you know, I remember hearing Chris Patton talk about John Major on one of a Radio 4, I can't remember what it was, and he said 
and he spoke with such eloquence about John Major and he said he was really very highly intelligent and that was not to be underestimated how intelligent he was but also how incredibly nice he was as a, mm. as a man and also that you know you can't come from Brixton and that background and become the Prime Minister without having something really extraordinary about you and so that I remember we talked about that a lot and Johnny really understood that and yeah so it's a really it's a really exciting you know you sort of think oh the John Major is going to be a bit a bit you know dull but actually Johnny's brought something really mm. fantastic and again I think like I hope all our other previous prime ministers and and the portrayals of those prime ministers we've tried to surprise people yeah. by telling them truths that they may yeah. not have known I was lost for words the boy from Brixton who couldn't get a job as a bus conductor being asked to mediate in a royal divorce by the Queen herself. I, I, I was tickled by her use of the word umpire. One or two? You know, uh, two. You know I've always fancied myself in the role. Players everywhere getting hot under the collar, appealing loudly all around you, and me, the calm, quiet, reasonable man. I'm heading back to Huntington. See you at the weekend? I'll try my best. Children will want to see you. We all want to see you. It depends how much work I have. Yes. Of course. There's so much in this episode, but always, you know, it's always the thing Peter says about it's always got to come back to the Queen. Yeah. And she's still the centre of, of everything that happens within the royal family. How is incorporating the importance of her within this episode with everything that's going on? I think it's just that awful feeling of the wall slowly and surely closing in on you and knowing that in the end there was no way out other than to accept that the divorce was an inevitability, but that what that must mean to her as someone who's been so steadfast and dutiful and self-sacrificing, to witness something that felt the opposite in some respects, in her her opinion, again, with Queen Mary's rule book in her soul still, you know, how do you then make sense of the future King of England? And who would at that point, of course, known what was going to unravel in terms of Diana's death but yeah I think I think it must have been incredibly hard for the Queen but particularly you know in in what were such difficult times of her children divorcing sort of right left and centre and how she had to navigate that yeah very difficult. Olivia Williams has done an extraordinary job. Yeah I agree on so many levels yeah. with her performance of Camilla. Mm, yeah. Even, you know, from just this episode, the kind of journey that character goes on from when we see her kind of trying to hide from paparazzi mm. on, you know, in house arrest, basically. Yeah. Because of the media's attack on her. Oh, terrible. To that point where she's meeting the spin doctor. Yeah. And she, le- you know, there's the, Brilliant. I mean, the comedy as well. That's what I love about car clamping. The car clamping, and she leaves that house and is has made has kind of insinuated that she doesn't have what Diana has because. But then she leaves and she charms them. Yeah, yeah. The levels of Peter's writing in terms of on surface level, there's the thing that you watch and you are entertained by. But if you think about it, there are depths to it, and it's saying much more than there's a clamp or I've I've stopped them from putting a clamp. She talks her way out of a clamp. Yeah, and she does it very. 
She does it very effortlessly, doesn't she? And she does it with charm and, and a really harsh reminder of how deeply unpleasant the press were towards her about her, you know, her eyebrows or her this or her that. I mean, how horrible that must have been for her to read by comparison to Diana. Yeah. Uh, it's so not the fairy story that everyone wanted and how painful that must have been for her and for Charles. But there's one line in it, and it's funny actually because I, I wouldn't have, I sort of hear it and it make, makes me chuckle, but it didn't really feel like it hit me. But in the early days of pre-locking our episodes, we always have little tiny, tiny internal screenings. Just look at it and go, does that work? Or should we cut that? Should we do this? Should we do that? And they're very, um, they can be quite tense. Um, and now and again, you have to bring in a couple of people that don't know it at all. And they would always be like people that you work with or someone that you can completely trust yeah. to be discreet and to be honest and to be, you know, and that usually is someone that knows the crown. So we brought in like one or two people that work with us and who knew nothing apart from they know the show. And anyway, and someone that works with me said, oh, my God, I think the abiding line for the entire season is has got to be well diana would never get clamped and i just thought yes that's so right <laughs> diana would never get clamped it's all brilliant <laughs> now it's time as we have in every episode this season to ask our resident font of royal knowledge annie salzberger a question that we're just dying to know the answer to and only the head of research can really know the answer to that question <laughs> This question is, did Charles really hire a spin doctor for Camilla's image? Yes, he did. His name was Mark Boland. And this is around the time he's in very difficult divorce negotiations. So it's mid-1996. Things are not going well. They are not seeing eye to eye, he and Diana. But what's on the horizon is once they are divorced what happens with Camilla, because Charles isn't going to leave her, so they have to rehabilitate her. But really, Mark Boland is recommended by Camilla's former divorce lawyer, who is an informal guide and advisor for Charles's own divorce. They feel he would be useful not only for Camilla, but also to just get through this very difficult divorce negotiations. And he, aside from Major, I would say, is the other very useful advisor in the divorce. He says, like, guys, you've got to get this done. You have to figure yourself out, because you are it's just embarrassing, and you're you're not helping your own reputations if you drag it out. So he comes on board, and aside from helping just finalize the divorce, he's tasked with masterminding the introduction of Camilla into public life. And he's a huge presence for us in Series 6. He He's there till about 2002. And his sole purpose really is to reverse the image the public has of Camilla, which is like a privileged fox-hunting mistress to make her acceptable to the public. Because if she's acceptable to the public and the public starts to get a little bit more comfortable with the idea of a remarriage, then Elizabeth can no longer be hostile to it. And so they focus on, if you change public perception, you have to change. It, you know, inevitably her mind will be changed because she'd be going against the public view on Camilla if they come round to her. So that's his job. And what's interesting about Mark Boland is this is not a normal courtier. He is not like former Sandhurst, Oxbridge, anything like that. He didn't have any family members who used to work in the palace. This is a kid who grew up in Canada and then uh, went to Middlesbrough for school. And he went to York. He studied chemistry, I think, in uni. He's just risen through the ranks as being an incredibly good PR guy. Well-connected. He used to work in the sort of public press 
Complaints Commission, so he has great connections when he comes in. He's only 30 when he gets hired by Charles, so he's like, yeah, he's an overachiever, really. He's charming, but he understands the real world, and he has the media connections that Charles really needs. So he joins as an assistant private secretary, and he will eventually become the most important voice in Charles's court. Coming up later, I'll be speaking to Olivia Williams, who plays Camilla Parker Bowles on the show. In this episode, we get an explosive scene between Charles and Diana, which we heard Suzanne Mackey talk about earlier. When the divorce is finalised, Charles drives to see Diana at Kensington Palace, and what starts off as a pleasant exchange ends in yet another painful argument. I was desperate to speak to the director of this episode, Christian Schwoho, to hear about the decision-making behind how this scene was shot. When Peter talked to me about this episode first, he would only talk about this scene. He, he pitched it to me, Chris, and there's this divorce episode and it is the, about the divorce and about the lawyers, but at the end it's this moment where Charles feels he has to go and see her one last time and then it's this massive scene that's only set in the kitchen of Kensington Palace. And they talk and they fight, but we also feel that there was love. My main focus always was that scene or it's actually a sequence of three different scenes. It's Charles arriving there and it's them cooking together and then eating, which ends up being the big scene. I don't know, I think it's eight or nine minutes long. Are those pictures different? Lots of things here are different. Why are you here? Come to take away more furniture. Before me has some nasty last-minute change to the settlement. Honestly, I'm not quite sure why I'm here. All I know is I got in the car this morning and it just sort of drove itself here. So what we did first is um, we've never seen the kitchen before. It's a build. It's a studio build. And Frank, my DP and I, we we started thinking, what would we need? And um, we spoke to Martin Charles, who's the production designer. So we kind of developed the layout for that kitchen together. Those three scenes were my three first shooting days for my work on The Crown for oh. season five. <laughs> I was kind of shocked when I heard that. It was three days in the week before Christmas. That would be because my actual shooting would start in, in January. But those three days, I met uh, Elizabeth and Dominic. And I realized they really like each other. And there was a chemistry. And we um, we had a, we started with reading the scenes. And Peter came in and he would start. That's what always happens when Peter is there. When, when we rehearse or shoot, he would start rewriting immediately which is not always great <laughs> yeah. but can be great so we um we would sit and read together and then peter left and all three scenes were meant to be shot um on our studio stages so we actually started rehearsing for i think two days the first scene when diana is in her in her drawing room and then she hears a car pulling over and then she sees 
him arriving and then he's in the hallway. Frank and I created quite a strict concept for that. You will see that the shots are very precise. It's very staged. It's very, there's no improvisation within mm -hmm. those moments. And then when they actually talk to each other, they just got divorced in a way. There is a big, big boundary between them. But towards the end, when he's eating the nuts and she invites him to the kitchen, it all lightens up and then we see a humor. And then they actually get to the kitchen. So and the first beat is them talking about like, what shall we eat? Because <laughs> we, we realize, oh, Diana is not a good cook. Charles neither. Right, we've got eggs, mushrooms. Started eating onions now that you've left. Ham. I could make an omelette. Great. Oh, dear. <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> Darren usually leaves me notes, sticky notes with instructions. Oh, I see. Never mind, the menu's changed. I'm having scrambled eggs. Is that yeah, now? It's perfect. So what we did is a whole day we would shoot them cooking together, improvising a lot, <laughs> having fun, um, listening to music. In the final cut, this is all quite short, but we needed it. And it was very helpful that I was given a whole day to to create that lightness, that that fun between them that I needed for the start of the big scene. And the big scene, of course, is not one shot, but it's very simple staging. There's actually, Diana never leaves the table in that scene. Dominic once before he leaves. So what we did is every shot we shot as a so-called master shot. So from the first second until the very end. So we did many, many takes that day. And every take was kind of different because mm -hmm. I wanted them to go all in and they loved doing that. I remember we started filming on Diana um, in the morning and Dominic, he was not even on camera, would cry in m almost every single take because he was so in it and he was so supportive of her. And that's something I haven't seen very often, especially by male actors, um, that they give all their emotion. And it's diff more difficult for men in general mm. to access their um, emotions. But she was so strong. And as I, I get emotional now just talking about it because it was so powerful how she went all in. But he was the same even being not on camera. camera. Wow. So... Um, I know they hated me in the afternoon when they had to keep going and I wanted more and more and more. And they were exhausted because this is, I mean, yeah, this is so hard, much, yeah. hard work. By then we didn't know each other that well because it was our third day together. And I remember Elizabeth kind of indicating she can't, she can't do it anymore. But I knew I'm, I wasn't there yet. I mean, that's I didn't... almost where you need the character to be in a way. Exactly, exactly. And so then I allowed them to to do it like in theater where you don't have to pause for the partner to come in with her or his dialogue so you can speak at the same time and that created something new in the very late afternoon and then we filmed we, we kept filming until the end so i think there was a lot of freedom i think after those three days the three of us were 
kind of friends because we we went through the separation together. And of course, we talked a lot about our separations mm -hmm. during those days and our experience and how we got over them. And uh, that was a great experience for them. And I think actors are always very vulnerable um, in, in, in the process of, of creating a character like this, even though they had done so many scenes before. But very often they just don't know if mm. they're doing a good job or not. Yeah, it's not that even people tell you you don't you, you feel very insecure. But I had a feeling we all felt very very positive about what we had done in those three days, and I was amazed. And after that, I felt like okay, I'm going home for Christmas. But now I, you know, this is a, a very Best big present. chunk. <laughs> yeah, has been has gone really really well. Yeah. And finally, it's time to hear from our brand new Camilla Parker Bowles herself, the amazing Olivia Williams. Throughout the series, we've really seen the ups and downs of Camilla's life and the sacrifices she makes for her relationship with Prince Charles. I was lucky enough to sit down with Olivia and I wanted to hear what she thought Camilla's journey was in this episode in particular. We find her in her Gloucestershire home, in her Gloucestershire bedroom, and... The photographers are at the gate. Once again, my character's on the phone to Charles. But I ask to film it on the floor because when she stands up, she will be goes past a window and she's going to be photographed. So I, I just imagine her sitting on the floor underneath a window and whenever she stands up, they, you know, you hear that noise of cameras firing off. And I think that would be the final straw, wouldn't it? That would be the end of being able to cope when you can't stand up and walk around your house mm. and there is no escape. And I think although she tries to maintain her her positivity on the phone to Charles, that when the phone goes down, she despairs. And as I... She's got a nice house. She wasn't going to, you know... She's not starving or, or homeless, but... You, you can still be in despair, that can still be intolerable and that still can be abuse. Mm. And we know it's a form of abuse that has destroyed many people's mental health. And at that time, this is the time when phone hacking and private detectives were going into people's houses and looking through their stuff. I mean, it, the, at the beginning of that episode, she is at the sort of nadir of the mental abuse of, of press intrusion. And even though she doesn't, She maintains that kind of positivity on the phone to Charles mm. because of the nature of their relationship. He knows because he helps and makes steps towards giving her the tools and the support that she needs to to kind of address that in a way. And that's that wonderful arc that we see her on in this mm. episode to that yeah. point. And I think it's difficult to believe now because she seems so at ease and one with herself, but... I think the comparisons with Diana and the dreadful comments, the awful comments about her personal appearance. People talk about a loss of confidence in, in a very sort of blasé, conversational way. But when you really have lost your confidence, when you don't believe yourself worthy, you know, that is a very dark place, low self-esteem. And Charles gives her the strength to go and sort of stake her claim and, and she takes on this new way of behaving which she now we see her in full flow you know talking to the press 
the real journey for me, there is the most phenomenal clip, which you have to look up when we finish this. <laughs> um, if you Google Camilla Winks at the press. So she's gone from crawling around her bedroom floor to when Donald Trump came to visit with Melania and they had to have tea together and they do a little photo call at the end. And finally, Charles has had enough. He says, OK, that's enough, let's go. And he lets Melania go first and then Donald and then Camilla lets Charles go and she turns to the press and gives them a big wink. And it is the dirtiest, funniest, cheekiest, I'm with you, we all know why we're here, isn't this ridiculous, wink. And... This woman has gone from crawling around her bedroom floor, afraid, harried, terrorised by the press, to giving them a big old wink as she leaves. And that, that, that's the journey of 31, couple 31. Anyway, how are things with you? There's ghastly people gone from the end of your drive. Oh, sadly not. <sighs> They seem to set up home there. I have to creep around like a criminal under house arrest. Mrs. Campbell has to deliver all my food to me and I can't even take the dogs for a walk. I'm literally under siege. Literally. Where did your process start for your version of Camilla? The voice is a very good place to start, particularly with her. And I had a lovely, very early meeting with our dialect, you know, William. voice coach, William. And sort of the first thing he said was, Chesty, Chesty. Because, you know, sunscreens can be very nasal. Um, <laughs> but he was like, no nasal, there's absolutely no. It's actually almost an absence of nasality. You almost sound quite like your nose is blocked. <laughs> and um, maybe as if you're trying to keep a sort of bad smell out of your airways. Like, um, so where M's, the letter M, almost becomes the letter B. And I had a lovely line in, I think, my first appearance where I had to say modern democracy. And um, so I had an opportunity to do the MB inversion very early on. And, um, I wonder if William spoke to Peter and tried to get something in specifically in the script. How <laughs> that would be very clever. Was there very yeah. early on. I am obsessed with Radio 4. I listen to Radio 4 all the time if it's true it's on radio 4 and if it's not true it's not on radio 4 <laughs> and i've listened to it all the way through my life and i can sort of time my life you know if i hear a little bit of you and yours i know it's somewhere between 12 and 1 <laughs> if it's you know the archers so my and um i realize i have that in common with camilla Maybe. almost nothing else in common but we're totally <laughs> obsessed with start of the week and she is so obsessed with start of the week that she actually incorporates it into her love play because in this famous conversation she says you know, it's like that program start the week i can't start the week without you <laughs> and and so in my life i've now started to sort of incorporate radio four program names into my life <laughs> It's like, hmm, that's a bit you and yours. <laughs> I love that. And gosh, I don't think I can eat any more. I'm a bit arch omnibus. <laughs> um, I'd like to see your money box live. Um, so, yeah, she's brought that into my life. Look, how can you incorporate Radio 4 titles into, every into, your, day. Yeah, mm. into your conversation? The, um, the, the brilliant thing about The Crown, from what I've been very grateful to discover is just this collaborative nature that this show has with so many departments that are there kind of at your beck and call as an, as an actor as a kind of playground of 
what toys you need to have the best play in this wonderful playground. And with Camilla as well, it's really interesting because I imagine that for you with research, I don't know how much research you did, but there's only, Camilla almost only really enters our, our world through us hearing her and seeing her at a certain point. There's not really much before that. Mm. How was that for you in terms of, did you, you know, did you dive into research on her or where did that sort of part of it? When you realise you're going to play somebody, it one sort of search history becomes very embarrassing. Because <laughs> so, now whenever I, you know, they, my telephone, my phone suggests something to me, it's usually royal related. <laughs> it's just like, hello magazine articles from the 90s keep popping up in my, you might also be interested in. So um, yeah, there was a lot of that going on. I think that that's one of the many wonderful things that, that you do, but you and Dominic do in this season is you... You give this relationship that started way before, you know, that there was, you know, they were childhood sweethearts. They had this and this connection that they had that has stood the test of time. It stood so much, you know, in, in the real world. Obviously, mm. it's dramatisation. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like the, the, the work that you and Dominic do individually, but together particularly, mm. you really show that sort of, you solidify that relationship. You solidify that kind of bond that they have. And we see that not only in this episode, but also in episode five, where we hear the intimate conversation between Charles and Camilla on the telephone. And I just think that that's a wonderful thing where you've given, you've kind of readdressed things almost in a way within the show. And I wondered if that's something you think about in terms of, you know, you talk about, seeing those pictures of her in the 90s and kind of feeling her pain through the eyes and wanting to address that in your performance and give it kind of truth and give that relationship depth and honesty, really. Absolutely. I mean, I think my point about that conversation is, first of all, no one else was meant to hear it. (laughs) So we've all got silly jokes that we have with Mm -hmm. our beloveds that it would be mortifying if anybody else heard what you know and um, I always think of D.H. Lawrence who tried to sort of of put on a pedestal sort of give dignity to the silly names that we give each other's genitalia and things like that but you know there is no dignity to it really (laughs) um, no matter how literary you want to get but actually with this conversation to me my dad was a huge fan of the goon show and I happen to know just because my dad left all his Goon Show scripts and I've got them all still. And that Prince Charles was a massive Goon Show fan. And um, to me, that conversation is hugely surreal. It's like it's like Spike Milligan. It's, it's nutty and sweetly self-effacing, actually, because he doesn't say, I want to be your tampon. He doesn't. He says, knowing my luck, <laughs> yeah. you know, I would end up as... That is self-effacing. That is not a sexual fantasy. You know, she's the one. She's Benny Hill, frankly. You know, <laughs> she's the one who, he, say, he, she, he says, I want to be near you all the time. And she says, what are you going to be, a pair of knickers? That's, like, silly. <laughs> um, but a little bit dirty, a little bit Benny Hill. And, and he says, knowing my luck, I'd end up as your tampon. And then going round and round the sort of toilet of eternity and never flushing down. Obviously, he wouldn't say toilet because that's common. But anyway, now that to me was, you know, him going, you know, it's it's my bad luck and it's funny and that's their humour. And the brilliant way it is being cut together, this, this thing that's become Peter's sort of um, 
signature, the setting of a very domestic, very small personal scene against the backdrop of national and international reaction. And this sequence, I think, is the ultimate example of that, as you hear the things they're saying and cut to the reaction of each member of the family reading the newspaper. (laughs) As poor Dominic, you know, puts his head into his hands in that last scene, uh, in that last part of the montage. Mm. So I'm, I'm as happy as I could be with an extremely uncomfortable making um, <laughs> part of royal history um, and proud to be part of it. Well, may I start by saying how much sympathy I felt for you for as long as I can remember, really? Oh, don't worry about me, I'm fine. Well, no, I disagree. I think the press and, by implication, the country has been monstrous. One doesn't want to be all poor me about it, but people have not been kind. I think they forget. Loving the Prince of Wales has cost me everything. So what are we going to do about it? It's a really interesting journey, you know, because, like, you talk about the impact of of what's going on in her life, but this idea that she's stuck with it. She's kind of, you know... One doesn't want to be all poor me, you know, and, and I love that scene. Do you mind if we talk a little bit in detail about, I'd love to. about that particular scene? Because I think there's so much in that and it kind of, it, it really shines a light on the personality of her and what she's willing to do and, and, and how she's been willing to stand by him and see it through. Mm. Um, and she's made that decision. She wants to come out the other side of it. Yeah, I mean, that that's the thing is that... She is from that stock. She's from that, um, I don't want to be all poor me about it. So that's why for me, I wanted that to be in her face, but not in her manner. And and she is someone who clearly has a a positive spin for any situation, bad situation that she's in. And that she would, she's funny. And I have actually weirdly met her. So, yeah, have she you? really is funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was, uh, can't quite believe it, I still um, shuddered to remember it, but I was a judge on the uh, 2016 Booker Prize and had 200 novels in six months. Um, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Camilla is a great believer in literacy. And she is patron of the Booker Prize. So as in my capacity as a judge, I met her. And we had a we had an archers hoedown. We taught archers, the archers. Um, That's the best yeah, research yeah, any yeah. actor could want ever. Yeah, it was brilliant. And something I really love about her is that she uh, champions these charities that help women who are victims of domestic violence and she was really into the Archer's domestic violence plot and so was I. So yeah, we chatted about that. But you know, she in her person, she is looking for the positivity in in any conversation, even at a do where she has to meet the judges of the book of France. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I wanted to get that and she doesn't want pity. She doesn't want, you know, sort of therapy. She doesn't want someone to put her, her hand on her knee and say, there, there, dear. She's like, what, you know, what are we going to do about this? I love it in, in the scene. Peter has her say, you know, the, the people you've got around you are doing this terrible job. <laughs> you know, a bunch of idiots could do this better. Come on, let's let's sort this out. But I also love it that he makes really clear unlike a certain other person, maybe possibly, that being queen was absolutely not part of her plan and that 
and it never it never it never was and i i still believe that i believe that now that it seems to be that it, that is what's going to happen but i don't think that was ever part of her agenda i think and i and that's there's something very attractive about that and i think the fact that she never uh, wanted to sort of take the title of princess of wales to which she is entitled mm-hmm. um but she respectfully you know kept that for the person who'd held it before yeah mm. it was really i found it so interesting when we were talking before we started properly was that you because of the decade that this is set in mm-hmm. that you had to almost take yourself back there physically mm-hmm. and know how to react to things of that time yeah, yes. Well, <laughs> there being a lot of phone work. You know, I, I was trying to remember what it's like when you don't, you didn't really walk around a room with a phone. That <laughs> you had to stay where the phone was because there was a wire. <laughs> and the hours of the amazing kind of cat's cradles ones used to make with the phone wire. Um, and and um, I read recently, I was so happy to have this um, this backed up by a newspaper article that you know the idea that i think she's someone who stays in her dressing gown all day <laughs> oh I mean, yeah and probably with a fire came out of my mouth <laughs> and just that the chance to show that domestically you know is such a treat and amy was totally on board you know i was i was like you could not i remember there was this book when we were both young called the sloan rangers handbook mm-hmm. And, you know, the way you could tell a fate is, like, you could not have a new barber. Your barber could not be new. It had to be. And, like, Amy found this incredible barber. I mean, it was more holes than than barber. <laughs> and the wax had all... And the zip didn't do up. And I was like, that's the one. It had a slightly greasy collar. I was like, that is, that's Camilla's barber. They're but, so important, aren't they? Amy yeah. said that the whole department yeah. and hair and makeup as well. Well, I need a whole podcast for the wig because... How many I, did we? How many did we go through till we found the right one? It was we. We she got it first time. Whoa! I mean, this. I feel that Camilla's wig is the kind of the pinnacle of the crown's achievement over six seasons. <laughs> because actually, I've been telling you about the work on the accent. Looking for all bollocks. It's the wig. I put the wig on. I, I need Camilla. do nothing. I can just put my feet up, <laughs> and then you know. I don't need to do anything. And what's wonderful is joining the crown, it's a bit like being, like joining the circus. You know, someone comes in a very nice car, which isn't like the circus, but they drive you through the night and you know you've arrived by the crunch of gravel of some stately home. And then I tumble into uh, the makeup trailer and come out dressed as Camilla. And from then on, people treat me like Walty. <laughs> and it's not the people who own these stately homes, you know, get a bit confused and sort of, sort of you must come private side. And, um, but if I take the wig off, <laughs> I'm instantly thrown back, you know, back into the honey Kitchen's wagon. that way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do mine. It's private side. Um, but yeah, if I've got my wig on, I need do nothing. That's Job brilliant. done. I'm Edith Bowman and I'd like to give special thanks to our guests on this episode, Christian Schroho, Suzanne Mackey, Annie Salzberger and Olivia Williams. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and something else in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join me next time when I go behind the scenes of the final episode of this series titled Decommissioned. 
Tony Blair has been appointed Labour Prime Minister after 18 years of Tory government and his vision for modernisation includes getting rid of the Royal Yacht Britannia, a vessel very close to the Queen's heart. Prince Charles requests a meeting with Blair, hoping for support in his own plans for change. But can he align himself to the youthful and energetic new Prime Minister? It was the first time I've seen it so clearly. The toll that the past few years have taken on her. And her distress or her grief was not for the royal yacht, nor her precious memories, it was for herself and the institution she represents. Like she felt she was being decommissioned. In which case, we must be ready, sir. And the country must start to prepare for you as the future. Subscribe now, wherever you get your podcasts.